Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, May 23, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historians Joanne Freeman and Carol Birkin discuss one of the founding's most divisive figures, Alexander Hamilton, from his meteoric rise to his scandalous final years. And now, enjoy the podcast. Good evening. You see before you now two of the major groupies of Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) And I do want to make two announcements before we begin. Lynn Miranda will not be joining us (laughs) as a guest, despite our wishes. Uh, And we promise, in the interest of humanitarian purposes everywhere, not to rap at all during this. That would be bad. That would be very bad. (laughs) Joanne, I'm going to start with a broad question. What kind of person was Hamilton? That's a broad (laughs) broad question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I suppose you could say, um, in a lot of ways, he's a person of extremes, right? To say he has a strong personality is to sort of not do him justice. He didn't suffer fools. He believed always that he was the smartest person in every room. And he was, most of the time, right? But he knew that, and that's never, that's not going to be that guy. No, (laughs) he didn't want to be that person. Um, He was impulsive. You know, even though when he was as senior as he got to be as a statesman, he tended to be impulsive. Um, I think he very much liked order. You know, there's a reason why I think, among other reasons, that he liked being in the military, and that's because there's a command, and he gets to be the guy in command. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he also had, obviously, the duel. He was involved not just in one duel, but he came ten times near fighting a duel. If you're going to be that guy then clearly he had some issues with his reputation and his character and some insecurities as well. Now, I have always thought of him as at heart also a romantic. It is his attitudes toward women seem to me to be so naive in many ways and so filled with some sense of Sir Walter Raleigh putting his cape down for it. Am I wrong or is that... No, I think you're right. And and I think... um, you can see it, particularly women in distress. Right. right. He's like the ultimate sucker for women in distress. So um, when the Benedict Arnold plot is beginning to unwind and um, Peggy Shippen Arnold is left alone, Benedict Arnold takes off when the plot is being found out. Hamilton is there. Washington arrives. So there are these soldiers and there's Peggy Shippen Arnold and she immediately breaks into tears. In her negligee, as she's, I recall. Exactly. Yes. She's, she's not... She's, not fully clothed. And there's a letter from Hamilton in which, oh, I wished I could be her brother, that I could, you know. <laughs> it was just a sort of flourish of a letter, you know. He was smitten with this woman in distress. So I think that's absolutely right. What so many anti-Hamiltonian figures accuse him, including Jefferson, of course, who did it daily, <laughs> accuse him of being a monarchist. Was he? (laughs) Um, Well, he was asked that 
uh, and accused of being that, but asked that pretty much for almost all of his life mm-hmm. after the Constitutional Convention. Um, his answer to that question was basically, well, if you can elect this national executive into office, then he's not a king. So I'm not a monarchist. I'm not proposing a king in the sense of a king that would have been in his world. So he did not consider himself to be a monarchist. But in that moment, when America had just broken away from a monarchy, and he was promoting an extremely powerful national executive, Mm -hmm. people had good reason to be suspicious of what he was trying to do, and he was not shy about saying what he thought. So, you know, he clearly thought the British government was the finest government on the face of the (laughs) earth, and he said so a lot. Well, if you're in that climate, when you've just broken away... And people assume that the default for the nation is going to be that they're going to slip back into a monarchy. It's all they've ever known. Someone like Hamilton is going to make you really nervous. And he wasn't good at really explaining what he... I mean, for a man who was able to write, what, 58 of the uh, Federalist Papers in, what, 12 minutes, he managed (laughs) to get them all written. Uh, I, I, I wish I could produce as quickly. I tell my students, they're first drafts. Yes, right, right. That he was not really willing or able to explain more fully what what he meant, that he wanted a strong leader in the federal government, but not a king. This is maybe going to sound counterintuitive. He was not a good politician, right? He really was was not a good politician. Um, He wasn't good at delegating responsibility. He didn't feel that he needed to explain things because, of course, he's right. 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 And if he's right, well, then it should be apparent that he's right. Um, He he had even people who were friends. You know, before he wrote, um, he wrote a pamphlet in 1800 attacking his own party's presidential candidate, John Adams. When he was pondering that pamphlet, he sent it to a few friends and said, what do you think? And the friends wrote to each other and essentially said, I'm not going to tell him that's a stupid idea. Are you going to tell him that that's a stupid idea? (laughs) (laughs) And finally, one guy, this fellow named George Cabot, says, I'll tell him. I'll tell him it's a dumb idea. He will never speak to me ever again if I tell him it's a dumb idea. So that's a a person who's better operating solo, but a, a solo politician doesn't operate so well. Well, he, he found his place by being an, in an appointive position yes. where he was in charge of the organization under, underneath him. At a moment when his job was setting precedence. Right. So he was the, a good person in that kind of a job. No, no one could say you're not doing it the way so-and-so exactly. did it because there was no one before him. Exactly. I, I think you're absolutely... And he rarely ran. I, I, I'm not... I can't remember. He was in the New York legislature for a time, or no? He was in the Continental Congress. Con- very yes, briefly. but that was not his. running around kissing babies and no. running for office. In <laughs> no. A, in a, he, no, he didn't think of himself that way. A, that way at all. There, right. There's a moment when um, Washington was trying to decide who to send to England to negotiate a treaty, and that ends up being John Jay, and it ends up being the Jay Treaty. Um, and, but for a little while, Hamilton's name is being tossed around. And interestingly, he writes a letter to Washington saying, you know, I'm just not popular. 
<laughs> That's probably not a good idea. You know, so I'll just take my name off the list. So he, he knew. I mean, he kind of prided himself, I think, on being someone who didn't care about the public, didn't do what he did for popularity. He says that uh, after the Whiskey Rebellion was squelched, and the, Baki's newspaper is attacking him right and left and center. He's, he says in the letter, he says, uh, I know that I'm attacked in the popular press, and I know people don't like me, but I have always done the right thing and the thing for the country, so I'm comfortable with myself, basically. So I think you're right that he didn't much care. Whether- he, didn't, he didn't trust that kind of public approval. I mean, this is the the ultimate irony of the moment we're in right now, right? He's like this beloved character. He wouldn't have known what to do with that, right? right? He would have been like, wait, (laughs) this is not what I'm about. And he wouldn't like the idea that people, general people, admired him. He would want only a select group (laughs) of of people he picked to (laughs) to admire him. Uh, He's in such such a contrast, I think, to some of the jollier fellows that that uh, I, uh, Governor Morris or uh, John Adams, John <laughs> <laughs> John Adams, who picks uh, Elbridge Gerry, the most hated man in government, to go uh, get a treaty signed with France. Also, not a very good politician. No, that's uh, true, John Adams. What? Everybody was worried about whether the republic would survive. I mean, all of them were deep. I'm deeply concerned right now. Uh, <laughs> sorry, all of them. All of them were really concerned, and they had different fears. What What were Hamilton's fears about? the fate of the Republic? What did he think the, the danger points were, or the pitfalls were for the well, Republic? It, it's interesting because um, particularly when you look at letters from 1789, particularly 1792 a little bit, you see um, a lot of people using the same metaphor, which is, um, I think Washington says, I walk on untrodden ground. ground right. Madison talks about unstable ground. Um, there's a Pennsylvania senator who says the ground is hollow under our feet. I mean, they all describe the same feeling that they don't know where they're going. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if it's going to work. So that's absolutely widespread. And I think we tend to underestimate that because we, you know, as soon as you say the word founding, you're assuming that something came after the founding, right? right? Which is nothing that they would have ever assumed. So there were all kinds of different fears with all kinds of different people in this moment. For Hamilton, I think the thing that he was most fearful of was demagoguery. Yeah. Was, you know, in his mind, a popular government, and our government was more popular in its its basis. The public opinion mattered more here than it did in a monarchy. His concern was that in that kind of a government, a demagogue is going to take over and people will follow after that demagogue and then that will be the end of the government. He says that over and over again, uh, always attributes uh, opposition to the government to be led by demagogues. But that claim is not so unusual. King George believed that the brace of Adamses, Samuel and John, (laughs) were responsible for the entire revolution. And loyalists spoke often about demagogues being... So that 
that anxiety about popular, the manipulability of popular will is is a pretty long tradition. It is, but it's the structure of the of America's Republican government that makes it have power, power. here yeah. that it wouldn't somewhere else because that you know there's a um, a moment when I think it's when Jefferson is president. Um, and a newspaper is commenting on the fact that as a politician, Jefferson actually is a very good politician. I said that once to a group of people and they got very angry at me. <laughs> he is not a good politician. He was. Um, yeah, they didn't want him to They didn't want him to be a politician at all. At all. <laughs> he was above that. Yeah. Is that but, right? Yes. Right. But he was not. Um, but he was very good at doing things behind the scenes and orchestrating things so that there wouldn't be conflict. Mm-hmm. And the newspaper came out during his presidency and it said something along the lines of, um, government in a republic is government by sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you don't get confrontational. You have to do things kind of privately. The public is watching, mm-hmm. and the public is going to respond, which, of course, is what's supposed to happen, but they're figuring this out as they go. Yeah. That, that leads me to the question about Hamilton and the press. I think Jefferson was very clever at setting up editors who would, you know, do the party line, but also in thinking about what, how to uh, address the public. He never wrote those letters in the press. He always got Madison, Madison. or someone. <laughs> Madison, Madison. come on, write a letter. <laughs> come on. Or and say the following. and say, Cut him to pieces in the face, face of the public, public. actually, what <laughs> yes. Jefferson says once to Madison. But nicely, do it nicely. Yes. And here you have this extraordinarily scandalous press. I I, I mean, fake news definitely (laughs) was invented in Baki and in in these, these with absolutely no constraints, made up stories, lied openly about what was happening, spread rumors. Well, there wasn't even, objectivity wasn't a goal Goal. in any way. Right, exactly. So... How did, but Hamilton wrote often. I mean, he dashed off uh, uh, essays uh, right and left on subjects, series of essays on. So what what did he think? What did he think he was using the press for? And what was his response to the? the press in general? Did he want fewer newspapers? Did he want more newspapers? He never set up a press. He never... Well, he sort of promoted the New York Post. But... But not like in the way that the Republicans were definitely bringing in editors, supporting editors, setting up newspapers. Giving them jobs in the State Department. Yeah. Yeah. So talk... Tell me just a little bit about how a person who could turned to the press so often, did not really seem to trust the press very much. To me, one of the interesting things about Hamilton in the press is that given that he distrusts the public, that he's wary about demagogues, that he is someone who wants an elite group of people to approve of him. So of the sort of top-rank founding folk, he's not the guy who you think would be constantly appealing to the public but I think he honestly believed that if he explained it yes. to the public, the public would understand 
and would agree with him. And so I think he was writing and writing and writing and writing because to him it was quite obvious. He just needed to lay out the argument. There, there's an amazing example of that. Actually, it's the Jay Treaty again. Um, and Hamilton heard there was going to be a big demonstration downtown in front of Federal Hall and decided he was going to go and interrupt this and prevent the yes. Republicans who didn't like the treaty from protesting and not liking the treaty. And he gets up in front of a crowd of people and he tries to explain the treaty. And no one wants the treaty explained to them. They've read it. Someone actually says, it's been in the newspaper. We don't really need you. Yeah. And he loses his temper and tells the crowd, they have no right to have an opinion on treaties. This <laughs> <laughs> is really not what you do to a crowd. And they throw rocks at his head. And this is bad, right? But what's interesting about that incident is that afterwards, he, he just wants to talk to people and explain. He says, let's go to, if we go to Trinity Church, I can explain the treaty to you. I can go line by line. You'll like it if I explain it. He, he honestly, I think, felt that, that given that he was right and he really sincerely felt that what he thought was what was best for the republic. It was just a matter of explaining it. He could get tenure and spend his life as a professor, <laughs> lecturing to. But I think you're right. Sometimes I get the feeling with these newspaper essays that he's actually thinking through himself. Rather, I think in most cases you're right, but sometimes it seems like he's thinking through his own position on it by writing it down. Is that, am I misreading I'm sure that, him? No, I'm sure that that's true some of the time. I, I, but I also know that some of the time he's so, um, one of the most characteristic things about him is that he's a plan-oriented guy. He yeah. plans everything out. So, for example, when the um, conflict with Jefferson is at its peak in 1792, 1793, um, he writes newspaper essays for three or four different newspapers under different names, all coming out at the same time so that it's like, you know, there's a massive wave <laughs> of people who agree with Hamilton. And so clearly there's a case in which he really planned out like an attack yeah. deploying the press. Now, I know we couldn't get away with not talking about dueling. <laughs> we, we've got to talk, not only because you wrote a great book, Affairs of Honor, about the whole honor system and how it led to near duels and duels, but especially with Hamilton, that this is every school kid who doesn't remember anything else will say, oh, yeah, he's the guy who was killed in a duel, right? Uh, so you said earlier that he, he almost dueled several times. What, what's going on? Well, I think for Hamilton, I, I tended, when thinking of like an image for how I imagined him in this period, it's always someone walking a tightrope without a net because he kind of made himself. I mean, he made himself by appealing to the right people and having them promote him in the right way, but he didn't come from a great family. He didn't come from anyone long established in the North American colonies. So he was kind of making himself as he went and was very aware of that fact and I think saw himself, and again, in a, in a sort of plot-driven kind of a way, as building his reputation mm -hmm. in a concrete kind of a way. Well, if, if you're in that mindset, and, and generally there was a culture of honor in this period in which people, men particularly, were very concerned for their reputation, but Hamilton had like the extra added bonus angst about reputation. What it meant was that if someone insulted you in the wrong way, 
and you didn't respond, then your reputation could be seriously wounded. And there's even an incident in which he uh, interrupts someone on the street and uh, the person insults or, or is about to insult him and Hamilton tries to stop him and the fellow says, why do I need to listen to you? There was some other time where you were insulted and you didn't say anything to anybody, so why do I need to listen to you, right? So there's an example of what happens when you don't defend yourself and you don't defend your reputation. So, it, it, you know, I think he was impulsive and tended to get emotional and angry. He lost his temper uh, and said things that perhaps he should not have said. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the fascinating things about dueling, actually, an honor culture and just affairs of honor, which I, is kind of what I call near duels, the point of a duel, and this is going to sound really counterintuitive, is not to kill somebody. The point of a duel is to prove that you're willing to die for your name and your reputation. Right. That is the point. Right. And so with a affair of honor, ideally, your seconds negotiate things happily between each other. You know, there's, there's a long series of negotiations, and nothing happens, and everybody leaves and says, well, I proved that I was willing to right. give my life. And so Hamilton went through that process 10 times before that final one. So, you know, the, and, and he's not the only one, although I, he certainly has to rank way up there as far as numbers. Um, but even Burr was involved in more than one. Uh, and, and I think that really just shows you the degree to which honor and reputation mattered in a, in a concrete kind of ground-level mm-hmm. way. And especially as he had nothing else to fall back on. Exactly. He couldn't fall back on family wealth, and he couldn't fall back on the idea that his family had a reputation in that, exactly. that colony or that state that, that protected him. Exactly. And, and he didn't feel that a marriage into the Schuyler family sort of... I, I see his anxiety about making it. He is really, in my mind the real self-made man of that whole generation. But eventually, you have to look around at your life and say, so I made it. Did he, <laughs> never, did he never feel that way? I don't think he ever felt that way. That's a really sad thing to yeah, say. Um, yeah. I don't. And not only that, but I think when he was preparing his affairs before his final duel with Aaron Burr, um, and he is drawing up his will, um, there's a, a, it's almost like a throwaway line in there, but it shows you that looking back at his life, it, it, he is sorry for the way he managed it. He says something along the lines of, he wants his children to take care of their mother, and he knows he has no right to ask his children to do anything because he was never there for them. You know, so he... And, and towards the end of his life, he's saying things like, this American world was not meant, not for, meant me. for me. You know, right. I mean, which is, again, we, we see him as a founder and think of the things that he did do. But I think he thought the country was going in a different direction. Whatever he wanted to do was not what was happening. Right. Things were spinning in a direction he never imagined. And I think that felt to him like failure. Yeah. Oh, poor Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> uh but his son, I mean, there's a, a, an extra added. It, his best friend, wasn't the Lawrence, what, didn't Charles Lee kill his friend? Uh, no, there was a duel that, um, that involved Lawrence, who fought in Washington's honor right. uh, during the Revolution. Uh, but that, that was his best friend 
from their youth. Youth, yes. Um, and he gets killed, but I don't think Charles Lee and, has anything to do And with. his son is killed the year before. Yeah. Do you think that... Uh, talk a little bit about the consequences of that, because it really, it's what drove you and me to have to go to Weehawken. <laughs> <laughs> And eat in the subway. <laughs> uh, I mean, for, what happened to his son? So his oldest son, Philip, um, basically hears that uh, someone, a Republican, has said something nasty about his father at, I believe, a July 4th address. Um, and he confronts this guy, confronts him in public. I think the guy was in a box at the theater and had women with him. Um, and they end up sort of confronting each other in the lobby of the theater. Apparently, this fellow, his name was Eaker, um, grabbed Philip Hamilton at some point and shook him in their course of their having this argument. So um, Philip Hamilton goes to his father and says, I don't know what to do. And, you know, at this point, Hamilton is at least nine times he's been involved in an honor affair and nothing happened. So he, in one way or another, says to Philip, well, he grabbed you, so you can't just walk away. So you need to, you know, pick a second and you need to talk to each other and sort of work it through. He did not assume that that was going to be a duel. He assumed that that was going to be a near duel. Um, and on the day of the duel, when he wakes and sees that his son is not there at some early hour in the morning and dashes off to the family doctor's house thinking, if my son went to fight a duel, he'll bring the doctor. And the doctor's wife says... Oh, no, my, my husband left very early this morning with your son. He faints at the doorstep oh. because he, he, he suddenly realizes it went way beyond where he thought and it should go. Any explanation for why it did? I mean, what happened that Philip was unable to negotiate an honorable settlement? It's unclear, and it's particularly unclear given that Philip was young. That's what I... You know, and, and so there are any number of things you could plead uh, if you were trying to not fight a duel, and one of them is if you're very young, one of them is if you're very old, um, if, if you're in the clergy, that's a good excuse. <laughs> <laughs> have a lot of kids, that's a good excuse. So it seems like they should have been able to negotiate their way out of it. So and I actually don't know the logistics of how that didn't happen, no. but he, Hamilton certainly thought it would. And the impact on Angelica, his daughter, is right. quite extreme. So Right. So Philip is killed. Um, and the next child down is Angelica. And she is never sort of right after that moment. She ends up being institutionalized, um, sort of frozen in that moment in time. So it, it savages his family in, in a lot of ways. Right, right. You would think then he would not have gone dashing into this. Can you hear me now? Oh, God, I just did a... AT&T commercial, <laughs> or whatever it was. Uh, it, he seems to be the one provoking Burr. Uh, I mean, I, there's no great love on my part for Aaron Burr. He's <laughs> a very Weasley guy. But, but it's Hamilton who doesn't seem to let it get resolved. Uh, is it because of their past history? Uh, I mean... Well, certainly at a really early point. So as early as 1792, and the duel is in 1804, as early as 1792, Hamilton says, and this is almost a direct quote, he considers it his religious duty to oppose Burr's political career. 
right? He sees him as a dangerous man, and that's the way he behaves. So they keep banging up against each other in one way or another in politics. They come near dueling in, in some, somehow or other having to do with the election of 1800, because Burr, when they finally are negotiating their final duel, Burr says, twice before we've almost done this, and Hamilton says, once before we've almost done this. And I think there's, Hamilton publishes a public statement of some kind in 1800 in the newspaper, which suggests to me that he was, in essence, explaining away whatever he said about Burr. But he really didn't want Burr to have power. And right. he never stopped pushing in that direction. And unfortunately, um, he says something nasty about Burr at a dinner. It gets ultimately put in a newspaper. It gets shown to Burr. Burr does what you do when you're an insulted gentleman. You write sort of a form letter that says, I hear you said this about me. Did you say it? You know, avow it or deny it. I deserve immediate response like a gentleman or something. Mm-hmm. That's like a, literally a form letter. Right. So Hamilton gets that letter and knew, you know, as soon as you got that letter, bells should be ringing, right? You're like, uh-oh, like this is now we're in dual territory. His response is logical but really bad. So he first does what I think he did the other one or two times when they came up against mm. each other, and that is he begins to talk about Hamilton said I could say something still more despicable about Burr. So Burr says, you said something still more despicable. Hamilton says, what does despicable mean, actually? <laughs> I, I, it, it's very, he's being very legalistic very. about it. What does Let that us talk about mean? the meaning. I can't possibly respond to you about this because I'm not sure what words exactly you're asking me about. I mean, that's provocative. Well, right. And, and Burr later calls it a grammar lesson. So he starts off by basically trying to in his mind, I think, reason his way out. You know, despicable, is that really such a bad thing? Is that worth cooling over? I don't know. You know, despicable can mean anything from, I think he said, from light to dark. What is despicable? And then at the end of the letter, to prove that he's not cowardly and afraid, he says something along the lines of, um, I, of course, always stand willing to defend my words in any way that I need to, which then feels like kind of a dare. Dare, So it's the worst possible letter you could send. And Burr is insulted by it doubly. And so it's almost that from that moment, the the two of them, Burr writes back an insulting letter and tells Hamilton he's not behaving like a gentleman. Mm -hmm. Now there's really no way they're going to be able to back their way out. They both insulted each other in the course of the negotiations. Right, right. But I, I, I felt reading... Hamilton's responses that he was provoking and, 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 and in many ways demeaning Burr's being offended. And well, I, he was, I think, just as you said, he was grabbing at the legalistic honor code. You know, according to the Code of Honor, there, you're supposed to have a very specific insult, you know, which is why that form letter comes. I hear you called me a rascal and a scoundrel. And then you say, well, I did call you a rascal and a scoundrel and something happens. But Burr says, you said something still more despicable about me. And Hamilton logically says, well, that's not, I mean, despicable is not a great word, but that's not really an insult. And you're supposed to give me a specific insult that I can deny. So he's playing that card. Yeah. And pays for it dearly. Yeah. Most people don't ask about the family life of most of these men. Uh, But I think that that in Hamilton's case, it's really fascinating. Uh, Not just his marriage to Eliza or Betsy, but his relationship with Angelica. 
church that seems to be... Flirtatious. Uh, to say the least. <laughs> uh, and, and so, and I love that when he's exposed to having had an affair with uh, Mariah Reynolds, he pulls what I call the Kobe Bryant maneuver. <laughs> you know, Kobe Bryant bought his wife a huge diamond ring. <laughs> Hamilton builds the Grange, right, <laughs> to make up for his little... Uh, 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 slip. So, so tell me a little bit about about family life and his relationship with his wife and 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 his relationship with his father in law. Which they go fly fishing together, right? right? Pretty regularly. Uh, yeah, he gets along really well with his father in law, Philip Schuyler. Um, and as you suggested a little while back, they're very prominent, wealthy New York family. Mm-hmm. So certainly. I don't think he married Eliza because she was wealthy, but I don't think he could have married someone who wasn't wealthy. So I think it was logical for him. Um, But no, he got along quite well with his father-in-law. He felt um, at times a little bit funny. There there are one or two letters in which the father clearly wants to give a gift and Hamilton's a little uneasy. You know, I'm the guy who doesn't have a lot and you're just going to sort of give me lumber for to build my house or you're going to give me you know whatever so i i think as in 18th century sense there's kind of a nice balance you know of of the two of them working out their relationship and Mm -hmm. i think a lot of older men i think liked hamilton saw him as like this young man of promise right and he lived that role a lot and i think in some ways that relationship you know philip schuyler was i think very proud to have hamilton as his son-in-law um, he did have a really flirtatious relationship with Angelica, um, with his sister-in-law. The thing about it is, though, it's really um, tempting to, to go running down that road, right? Like, you know, and they did tend to do things publicly that were um, sort of shocking, you know. So there's some party they were at, and Hamilton gets down on his knee in front of her and says some, you know, we get back to the gallant Hamilton and women. He says something flirtatious in public on his knee to Angelica, and of course everyone is like, oh, you, know, ooh, you know, what does this mean? But some of the letters in which, it, it, when you read them, you think, ooh, that's a little risque. Elizabeth, on the bottom, signs a note. I, so, you know, I, I think this was not... To me, an affair, affair. I think this was a, oh, I agree a risque with that. flirtation. They right. both enjoyed playing that role in public. And I think that that's what they were playing at. And I don't think he would have risked the fury of the Schuyler no, that's true, family true. to engage in something no, that's totally so insanely inappropriate. Yeah. But it, she was apparently... Far more, how shall I put it, va 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 voom than his <laughs> wife was. She, uh, I, she was someone, you know, she went in her time in Europe, she yeah. had royalty impressed. Yeah. So, yeah, she, she was quite a presence. And, I think. and Elizabeth never struck me as a very dynamic person. She is a rock solid, strong person. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think she's super dynamic. Um, and I think it's easy to overlook how strong she had to be to put up with him. For the, yes, yeah. yes. That was not yes. easy, you know. Yes. And, and she really kept that household running, and she really 
dealt with a lot of things on his part. You know, there's a, there's a, a little note that I found years ago. Um, Hamilton lost his bank book. <laughs> the Secretary of the Treasury lost his bank book. So, and, and Elizabeth was the one who was like, you know, sort of, okay, okay, like it's all going to be okay. Um, he, he was focused on what he was doing and not focused on other things. Um, and you discover how really strong she was after his death. She lived for a really yes. long time. Yes. And uh, she, her last, I want to say decades, she lived to be in her 90s. Um, and she dies, she lives in Washington towards the end of her life. And so she's in her 90s. She's almost in of herself a tourist attraction. When people go to parties, if Mrs. Hamilton is there, everyone wants to see Mrs. Hamilton. But she would, like, go to her lawyer's office and walk to her across town, and the lawyer would say, well, Mrs. Hamilton, let me call you a carriage to walk home. She's like, nah, I don't need a carriage to go home. <laughs> walk home, you know? You, you really see that she was a powerful person. One of the Hamilton kids moves out west, and in her, at least her 80s, she's trucking across the country to go and visit this kid. So she was a really strong person. And, and doesn't she have a confrontation with Monroe about that, that's the moment when I think she really shines, where he comes and sort of apologizes for everybody spilling the beans about the Mariah Reynolds affair, and she's having none of it. Yeah, he, Monroe comes in Washington and essentially says, you know, you and I are all, among the only two left of that generation, and maybe we can kind of make amends because the idea was that Monroe had helped leak what ended up causing the Reynolds right. affair. Right. And she says something along the lines of, um, Mr. Monroe, if you think that our being this much closer to the grave means that I've forgiven you at all, you're much mistaken. And she storms out of the room, right? He's ex-president Monroe by this point. Yeah. And she wants nothing to do with him. She really... Yeah, I, I thought that was a fine moment in yeah. her life. <laughs> I, I want to... I, I have two questions. One is about his abolitionist uh, reputation. But the second one that seems to me to be more interesting in some ways to me is you spent a lot of time with Hamilton. That Not personally, but... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's when my students say, what was it like to live through World War I, Professor Burke? <laughs> and I say... You're failing this <laughs> I, But you've edited his letters. You, I mean, you're known in the profession as sort of the go-to person about, about the Federalist Papers. What, what is the enduring attraction? His, his, his writing, like the writing of many of these men, is not exactly... Mm, easy bedtime reading. <laughs> uh, what, is, what is the opinion? I mean, both of us have really spent careers loving Hamilton. Uh, what, what is, the, what is his, the appeal that makes you go back over and over again to his letters, to his essays, to his life? And it's definitely his letters that I think first mm-hmm. grabbed me. I mean, I think... so. I, and I've been studying Hamilton for like 40 years at this point. Right? She started when she was nine. <laughs> Close. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll take nine. I'll take nine. Um, but a long time. And initially, I think what intrigued me was 
there wasn't a lot written about this person. He had a weird beginning. He's born illegitimate in the West Indies. He dies dramatically in a duel. I think he just struck me. You know, I was reading biographies wildly about this whole generation of people. But this struck me as sort of a quirky guy. Mm -hmm. And I read a biography that I didn't like that shall not be named. And I didn't believe it. And I went to the library and I asked the librarian what the person who wrote this book had used to write the book, because I wanted to read it, because I wanted to see what I thought. And she pointed me to his papers, his published papers, the 27 volumes. And I just started reading them and never stopped, basically. I would go through all 27, and then I would go back to the beginning and just start again, go through all 27. It was fascinating, because it was a real person captured in those letters. And the kind of person it was, he's so extreme as a person and as a politician it occupied me endlessly trying to figure out the logic. Why did he do that? You know, it, he was fascinating, remains fascinating to figure out the logic behind right. why he does what right. he does. I worked on, that was the, oh, thank you. That was the uh, WPA project for Columbia graduate students, the Hamilton Papers. And I worked on the Hamilton Papers and then the J Papers. And there were days when he was so, ir- for some reason, so irritating. And I would want to say, <laughs> why on earth did you do that? And other days where watching his mind exactly. work, exactly. watching these arguments that he would make where there was not any space between one sentence and the other in, in terms of logic, in terms of the argument being made, that you just sat there and thought, If only I could write a dissertation that really was as good as one of these letters. So I understand the appeal. I've just been handed uh, many (laughs) questions, so I'm going to open it up to audience questions. If Hamilton had lived and moderated his attitude, would he have been eligible to run for president? I don't think attitude has anything to do with this. <laughs> or would this have been unconstitutional since he was born in the West Indies? Ah, uh, no. So there was an, basically an escape clause. Yes, there was the a grandfather yes. clause, and right? if you were a citizen at that time, then you were not considered to be a foreign citizen. So he could have run for president if he wanted to, but... I don't think in a thousand years. Years, it would never. He would be never. Working. I mean, kind of going back to what I said before, right? He knew he wasn't liked. He kind of liked not being, being liked. liked. I don't think that ever in a thousand years even crossed his mind. So this one reads: Once and for all. Uh oh. <laughs> How influential was Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention? Wow, once and for all. Um, We want this settled. (laughs) Um, I may or may not, like, maybe like once and not for all. I'll I'll get close. I'll get close. Um, It is true that at the um, Constitutional Convention, he did indeed stand up and speak for some people, say, six hours presenting his plan of government. His plan of government was extreme. So his plan of government had a, a president or an executive for life during good behavior. He had electors choosing electors choosing the president. So in many ways, it was a less small-D democratic government. And it was extreme. And given what I said before, that people were so nervous about assigning power to this new government, he stood up and was like, okay, like here's the power and here's where we're going to put it and it's going to be great. Some people suggest 
that he got up, partly he was showboating, right? He, he, he had been pushing for a federal convention to do something for the Constitution right. for years and years and years. And finally he gets it and he's outvoted by the rest of the New York delegation. So maybe he was partly saying, okay, I'm here, this is what I think. Some people also suggest that he got up and was that extreme because by being that extreme, something that was a little bit more extreme than otherwise might have moderate. been, would have yes. seemed moderate, would have yes. passed. So it's, it's, or a combination of both for him. But even if he said very little at the convention, in a way this is a trick question in my mind, he is probably the strategist most responsible for there being a convention. I mean, he worked on this from the Annapolis plan from... Exactly. From, he's, he is orchestrating the, the arrival of those men in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. And so even if he didn't speak as often as Gouverneur Morris or as often as James Wilson or as often as James Madison, I think the convention itself is part of his legacy. I, I agree with that. So once and for all, <laughs> what exactly intrigued George Washington about Hamilton? Oh, that's an interesting Yeah. Question. Um, Did Washington simply overlook his faults? I think Washington was really aware of his faults. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they work side by side during the Revolution. Towards the end of the Revolution, they have a big fight. Hamilton storms off. Washington sends someone to apologize. Right. Hamilton refuses the apology. Right. The chutzpah of this guy. He's like, you know, 19 years old. Um, so... Washington really knew the pros and the cons of Hamilton. I think he really admired his gifts. Yes. I think he really um, admired and liked his character, his drive. People would write to him. There's, a, there's a, an exchange of letters. Someone wrote to him and basically said, how can you trust this guy? And he's so blatantly ambitious. How can you trust someone that ambitious? And in a republic, one of the scariest things is a, a person who wants power who's ambitious because... In a republic, you can be a person who seizes power more easily. So ambition is not good. So someone is essentially writing to Washington and saying, you, you can't trust this guy. He's very ambitious. Washington responds by saying, yes, 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 he's ambitious. I'll admit he's ambitious. But it's like a good kind of ambition, yes. right? It, it's a kind of ambition that drives him to do things that are, that are positive for the country. And I think definitely Washington understood that much of that ambition was patriotism in the for broadest, the country. for the country. Right. He, he could have gone off and made a great deal more money sooner than he ever took up his legal practice. But he really was a nation builder. And I think Washington was too. And yeah. I think and, well, they, and they agreed in the kind of kind nation of, building that needed Exactly. Happen. Yeah. Uh, who was Hamilton close with? Well, Mariah Reynolds, but <laughs> who, who was Hamilton close with, especially among the founders? Oh, um, well, for a while he was very friendly with Madison. Yes, you know there, there, there's a there's a, a wonderful story, sort of a sad story. Um, so they were they were friendly, and you know at the federal convention, the constitutional convention, they're, they're you know Federalist essay writing partners, and right. um, there's a story about them walking down the street and watching a performing monkey or something and laughing. You know, they were, they were hanging out and being friendly. Obviously, politics drives them apart. So years and years later, Hamilton's been dead for quite some time. Someone goes to visit Madison in his extreme old age and says, I hear that one of Hamilton's sons 
is going to write a biography of his father, and he's going to say, you abandoned him, that you were friends, and you abandoned him and, and left for Jefferson, and it's all your fault that the friendship dissolved. And what's fascinating is that Madison's first response is, oh, no. You know, he's like wounded. And then he stops, and he says, I abandoned Hamilton, and then he pauses, and he says, Hamilton abandoned me because he tried to administration the government into being something it was never intended to be. And he uses administration as a verb, and according to the person who watched it, he was like very proud of himself for using a word that way. Um, but, but that was how he saw it, was yeah. that, that yeah. they agreed, and that Hamilton then did something that they hadn't been intending. Right. Obviously, the reverse was true. For- and I, I think for Madison, for a while it was really felt as a great loss. And for Hamilton, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he assumed he was going to become Secretary of the Treasury and he'd have this great friend in Congress, you know, there to support what he was doing. Right. So, yeah. What was Hamilton's role in the New York... So this is the question that I was going to ask. Manumission law, was he an abolitionist? Okay, so abolitionist <laughs> is a... Is a, that's a word. So um, if by abolitionist you mean someone who wanted the immediate right now end of slavery, no, he was not an abolitionist. He was anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. He was opposed to slavery. He belonged to the New York Manumission Society. Um, he was active in it. So, but the thing about his, his anti-slavery or abolitionism is when you look at the things that he was passionately engaged with in his writings... Anti-slavery is not one of those right. things. It, it's, it's just, it, it, he's on the right side, doing the right thing, without the kind of gusto that he gave to many other things in his life. So he was, but the, the idea that he's this great abolitionist champion doesn't, doesn't really fit. Right, right. How did Hamilton go from being such an unpopular politician to being so beloved at the time of his death, with so much public mourning and huge funeral procession. Everybody loves a dead guy. (laughs) Well, you know, all of a sudden, you remember wonderful things. Well, John Adams said something along the lines of, well, we all wanted to get rid of him, but not that way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, part um, part of it was the way he went, right? Part of it was it was a a dramatic and horrible way to go in a duel. Part of it was, and Aaron Burr actually says this, people hated him so much that by loving Hamilton a lot in a public way, they were kind of slapping at Burr, right? So some of it was political. And some of it was, you know, there's a point at which, and this is early, but it's not that much further down the road that people begin to understand that there's a generational shift happening. And, you know, having a, a sort of major founder like this pass on, I think had an impact. And a lot of the people in that procession were military officers who he knew through the Society of Cincinnati. And tradesmen. And tradesmen who he certainly supported his economic and fiscal policies, supported commerce and trade. So I think that you didn't see a whole lot of Virginia planters in (laughs) in that. I would venture to say there were no Virginia (laughs) planters. Uh, Do I have time for one more with her? Oh, good. Do you think there is some inconsistency in thinking the British government was the greatest in the world when through stupidity its ministers and kings had just lost the American (laughs) colonies? (laughs) Whoever asked that, that's a great question. question. 
no, because I think what he admired about it was the structure of it, was the, was the balance of it and the structure of it, less than the execution of it. Right. That's what he admired, really. And again, as someone who thought he planned his life in plans, right? He was a person of structure. Um, I think that appealed to him about the government. And also, I think he was extremely impressed by the political economy, that is, mm-hmm. by the, the government's willingness to lend its support to economic development, which is and the way course, that that was woven together, woven, yes, absolutely, yes, and I and that of course is was the essence of his plans when he was Secretary of Treasury. So uh, now his one, I would never have thought of. What were Hamilton's views on geographic expansion? Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, he was nervous about <laughs> expansion because he didn't know if the government could maintain power as the nation spread west. So he wasn't sure how he felt about that. Um, he, when, during Jefferson's presidency, when the Louisiana Purchase happens and there is great expansion all of a sudden, there are these sad newspaper essays from Hamilton in which he basically says, you know, well, he was just lucky, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson didn't do anything to sort of make that expansion happen. But I think he was nervous um, about the government being able to maintain the right amount of pull yeah. Over Western distances. Uh, why are there so many surviving letters by Hamilton? Because we were blessed. <laughs> there are so many people who you think, oh, I'd like to write a biography of Rufus King. And then you find out his family burned all his letters. So <laughs> Hamilton's kids and, and Elizabeth. Eliza and her kids made it their mission after his death to collect things, to save letters, to to really, in a sense, ensure his legacy. Those of you who have seen the play, the end of the play is true. Um, But they really did. And and the third or fourth sons, I always have a hard time counting the sons. He had eight kids. Um, I think the fourth son, John Church Hamilton, really made it almost his life mission to collect papers, to prove. There was a big effort to prove that Hamilton helped write Washington's farewell address. The Federalists didn't want that to be known because they wanted Washington to be like the great man that they could claim for their party. Elizabeth Hamilton wanted Hamilton to get credit for that. And there was this moment when, I call them the the sort of feuding Hamilton boys, like showed up at the house of someone that supposedly had proof and like demanded that he turn over the proof because they were going to prove it. And there were these Federalists writing to each other saying, keep the papers away from the Hamiltons, you know? It's like a thing. But but part of it is those the kids and, and Eliza who made it their mission. She tried to find a biographer of him right again and again and again and again. So they really made it their effort to to preserve his writings, which, yeah, I sing hosannas for that. Thank you, Joanne, oh. as always. Quite wonderful. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.